Okay, great, thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. You know, Pastor John just talked about baked goods, and in the spirit of transparency today, I need to tell you that Doris Vieno, the maker of the world-famous Easter cinnamon buns, dropped some by the office, and we're eating them all without you. So uh, we feel a little bit guilty about that, but we felt like we need to kind of get that off our chest. So I'll be enjoying this as soon as my message is done here this morning. Uh, If you're watching this service today with kids, Uh, and they maybe don't want or aren't interested in watching this service, or maybe you aren't either, you can go to our River Kids website, and you can check out some resources there, and there's some activities for kids um, as well. Uh, Today we're going to be starting a brand new teaching series on the book of Philippians, and I'm really looking forward to kind of walking through this book uh, chapter by chapter and unpacking the great themes of it. it. It's a short little letter written by the Apostle Paul to the local church in Philippi. I'm going to upload a reading schedule so you can read along as we go through the series as well and just kind of soak in this book um, as we work through it. Uh, The reason I want us to go through this book is because it's theme. And the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. And maybe you're like me and you've had moments in these last little while where finding joy uh, has been a real challenge. Maybe you and your spouse are working from home and uh, you're trying to carry out your work in a new routine. Maybe you've got kids at home as well and you're trying to make sure they get some schoolwork done and don't spend the whole day on a screen and joy just feels like a struggle. I think about high school kids, in grade 12 in particular, who are just feeling the weight of disappointment right now as they look ahead to the next few months and so many things that won't be happening in the way that they envisioned. And the challenge to be joyful in the midst of that. I think about our retirees who are used to getting up each morning and going to their favorite coffee shop and hanging out with a group of their friends and solving all of the world's problems. And it's been five weeks now and they've not been able to get together and just feeling that disconnectedness and trying to find joy in the midst of that. And so that's what we're gonna be looking at this book, trying to figure out, God, how is it that we can experience joy? Because one of the things that God wants for us more than anything is to know joy and to experience it on a daily basis. In fact, one of the great commands, one of the most popular commands throughout Scripture that God gives to us is to be joyful and to experience joy, whether it's to rejoice, uh, to be joyful, to fear not again and again. God is calling us to, to know His joy. It's one of His great desires for our life and how appropriate for the time that we're in, which raises all kinds of questions, though. What is joy? And how do I find it? And how do I, what do I do when I'm not experiencing it um, like I want to be? So this is what we're going to be looking at as we go through the book of Philippians. Um, one of the definitions that I'm going to be using as we think about joy is just this one. And it's, it's kind of cobbled together from a couple of different ones. But I, I think it's helpful. The good feeling in our soul that comes from the Holy Spirit confirming God's presence and grace at work in us that good feeling in our soul, that this is where joy, this is where we experience joy. We feel it in our souls. Um, And it comes from the Holy Spirit. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And it comes when we know that God's presence and his grace are at work in us. And in fact, if you do a word study on joy, you'll discover that joy and grace are so intimately connected. In fact, they come from the exact same word. To know that God loves us unconditionally, that he welcomes us, he's gone looking for us. 
that he sees our sin and even our rebellion, and he has a plan to redeem and to heal us, and that he longs to give us this life with purpose and mission and meaning and joy. And that when we start to connect all of that together, all of that grace, we start to experience joy in our lives. And one of the best things about joy, and this kind of joy, is that no circumstances um, can keep us from experiencing it. There's a great D.L. Moody quote about joy that I love, and we're gonna, I'll be referencing it this a few times here today. Joy flows in the night as well as the day. Joy flows through persecution and opposition. It's an unceasing fountain bubbling up in the heart. Isn't that a great image? That God is watering, irrigating, soaking our life with joy. And to think about that's what God wants for us to experience on a regular basis. So we're going to look at some stories um, look and look at how God moved in people's lives with his grace and how when he did, it resulted in them experiencing joy. And we're going to look at it in the book of Acts. Now, you'll notice a list of books of the New Testament on the screen here. Let me just kind of go through them quickly. You'll notice the first four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. The next book is the book of Acts. And this is really Acts of the Apostles, or Acts of the Disciples that Jesus commissioned after his resurrection to go out into the world and to continue the work that he began. And Acts really captures this this missionary work of these first believers as they traveled throughout the ancient world, taking the gospel message to different communities. And what would happen is they would go to a community, and then they would come back, and later they would write a letter back to that same church and encourage them and instruct them in the way that they ought to continue going. So, for example, the Apostle Paul would travel to the province of Galatia, and then he'd come back, and a few years later he would write them the letter to the Galatians. He traveled to the city of Corinth and spent a few years there, and then he came back, and a little bit later he wrote one, and then two, and then three, and some scholars think maybe four letters to that church, which is never a good sign, Um, and he writes to them in kind of instructing them. Paul traveled to the city in northern Greece called Philippi, and then probably about 10 years later, he writes them the letter, which is the book of Philippians, which is what we're going to be looking at uh, over this next series. And so it's important to go back into the book of Acts and see Paul's first visit to this city in Philippi and see what happened. Who were the people that he encountered? What were the stories that took place and how did God move? Because it'll help us have a better understanding when we get to the letter. So we're gonna turn this morning to Acts chapter 16. So I'll invite you to get your Bible. Get it out, go find it, put put this on pause and go get it. If you're a highlighter, underliner, note taker and you know who you are, go get all your equipment and have it all set up in front of you. If you need to refill your coffee, go do that now. And we're gonna, because what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read you a few verses, make a few comments and we're gonna work through um, this section together. And then I'm gonna have a couple of summary thoughts and then the Shifes will close our time in worship today. So get your Bibles out and turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to start reading at verse 13 together. Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 13. And it reads like this. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So what Paul's describing here is a typical Jewish community that didn't, wasn't big enough to have a synagogue. They would meet down by the river. And so Paul and, and Luke and Silas, they, they go on down to the river and they meet with the believers there. And it says that Paul sat down. 
when it says this, it means that Paul then began to teach. This is the, uh, the posture of the preacher. He sat down, the people gathered around, and he began to teach them. Now, it doesn't say what his sermon was for that day, but I can imagine that Paul would have maybe told the story of his own experience of coming to faith in Christ, of being kind of grown up as a purebred Jewish boy who had achieved high ranks in kind of the Jewish uh, religious community and who actually was trying to put a stop to the Jesus movement. And in the midst of that, God met him in a really profound way, literally knocked him off his donkey. And Jesus speaks to him and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul then takes some time. Um, he spends some time with, with some religious leaders. He goes away and he has this deep conversion experience. And later he comes back and a local church sends him out to become a missionary to the ancient world. And maybe Paul told the story of just the grace of God and the transformation and the work uh, that God did in his life. Verse 14 and 15. One of those listings was, was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worship, worshiper of God, so she was a, a Jewish, a, a religious Jew. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So here you have Lydia, a small business owner, and I love the language that Luke uses here to capture how God uh, worked. It says, the Lord opened her heart. It wasn't Paul's preaching. God's grace was active in her life in that moment, opening her heart. You know, this is the language that we use when we pray for loved ones who maybe are far from the Lord. This is the language we use maybe to describe when we first come to faith and we just experience God's doing something in me. I just, he's stirring things up. He's making me think all these thoughts about him and ask all these questions about him. This is kind of the same thing. God opens our heart to him. And it's a beautiful story of God's grace at work in this life of this lady named Lydia. Note that she got baptized. She and her family right away. This was the New Testament way. When you make a decision for faith, you get baptized really immediately. None of this go off and think about it for five years. All right, so this is their first little encounter of first of three encounters that Paul has in the city of Philippi. It's a nice start. Let's look at encounter number two, starting at verse 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. So Paul and his followers are making this regular habit of going down to the river and meeting with this, the Jewish community there and preaching and sharing with them. But as they're going each day, there's this slave girl who um, is owned by some businessmen who have hiring her to tell the, the future and making profits off of her. And she keeps kind of heckling or yelling at them as they're doing this. And I love Luke's honesty. He says, you know, that that Paul got so annoyed at the spirit that he cast it out and immediately this young woman was free. Immediately she walked away from this darkness. Immediately 
she left the haze and walked into the light. Um, but it also meant that she lost her ability to predict the future um, and earn her money. So let's see what happens next. Verse 19. When her owners realized that her hope in making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and practice. So when the demonic force leaves this young woman, so does her ability to make money for her owners. Now, if you're using demon-possessed people to tell the fortunes of others for profit, you probably haven't won business of the year by your local chamber of commerce, okay? These are mafia-type business people. And notice what they do to turn the crowd against Paul and Silas. They accuse them of being unpatriotic foreigners. We know all they really care about is money, but they appeal to people's fear of the other. And they make references about them being a different type of people from a different type of place and not respecting how we do things here. And it works. Look at verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they were severely flogged, They were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in an inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, the person writing this account is the gospel writer, Luke. Luke was a medical doctor. And he makes reference here that they were severely flogged. Flogging in the ancient world meant you were stripped naked, you were bent over a pole, and they beat you with a rod just firm enough that it wouldn't break when you were struck. And the purpose of it was to inflict as much pain as possible. But it wasn't just physical pain, it was psychological. It was always done in public so that people could join in and call out to you and holler insults to spit on you and in this case probably make racial slurs against Paul and Silas. And after this, they're thrown into prison. And this is where we have our third encounter. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer, remember, who was supposed to be watching things carefully, he woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Do not harm yourself, we're all here. Now, a Roman prison was dark, it was cold, it was partly built underground. One historian described them this way, its appearance is disgusting and vile because of the filth, the darkness, and the stench. And I want you to hold this image in your mind of Paul and Silas in this Roman prison um, because we're gonna come back to it again and again throughout the series as we talk about joy. Because you've got Paul inside, they've been beaten, their bodies are broken and bleeding. They're in this vile, dark, awful environment, and they choose to worship. They choose to pray, and they choose to sing. Their prison cell becomes a sanctuary. This awful, dark environment becomes holy ground for them. Because as bad as things were, and they were bad, the Holy Spirit within them gave them grace in that moment 
which was the source of their joy. To use D.L. Moody's quote from earlier, joy bubbled to the surface of this Roman prison as God was supernaturally involved in their lives. And you know, I think there's a lesson for us right now as well, that God through his Holy Spirit can turn a cramped living room full of too many people or maybe an empty apartment into a holy ground for you too. And that God's grace, because of the Holy Spirit living in you, can minister to you even in this season of being alone or being isolated or being stressed out. Because the great news about God's grace, which brings about joy, is that God can get to us anywhere we are and meet us in that moment. What happens next here is a scene of panic. Uh, There's an earthquake uh, the prison door is open, chains fall off, the, pri- the guard who was supposed to be guarding carefully was asleep. He draws his sword because he knows that when his superiors find out that on his watch all the prisoners escape, they'll kill him. And so he decides to kill himself first when Paul hollers, don't. Look what happens in verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and his household were baptized. Now, if you grew up in church, as soon as you hear that word saved, I know our mind immediately goes to like a Billy Graham crusade and just as I am and getting saved. That's not what the guard was looking for here. When he calls out and says, how can I be saved? He's basically saying, how can I not die tonight? It's literally meaning I need to get out of here. I need to be rescued from this situation because I'm going to be killed because of what's happened. It's the heartfelt cry of someone who is afraid. It's also a dangerous statement to say around a preacher like Paul because he picks up on it immediately. And it says that he shared the word of the Lord with him and showed him that he could be saved or redeemed or rescued by the Lord in that moment. And I love the simple invitation that Paul gives to the guard. And maybe it's appropriate for some of you who are watching here today. He simply says this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe, transfer your trust from wherever it was before and put it in Christ. You know, you've been trusting in the Roman Empire to look after you. Its strength is your strength, but they're gonna kill you because of what happened here today. So transfer your trust to Jesus. You've been trusting in your sword as kind of your protection, but you were just about to kill yourself with your own sword. Transfer your trust to Jesus. And he does. And he invites Paul and his team home to his family. His whole family is baptized literally in the middle of the night, and I'm sure the deacons were there to make it legitimate, but this is what happens. And a major transformation under the grace of God takes place in this man's life. And there's two kind of images in, this, in this, these last verses that capture it. Uh, the first is the fact that he goes from being their guard to extending them hospitality. You can imagine, um, after this scene has happened, and uh, he decides he's going to take them home for supper. They're in the car driving home. He takes out his cell phone, and he calls his wife and says, hey, honey, um, I got off a bit early tonight. There were some issues at work. Uh, We'll talk about that later, but I wanted to give you a heads up. I'm bringing some people home for supper. No, not some fellow guards, (laughs) some inmates, (laughs) and he shows up at his home, 
and he prepares a meal for Paul and for Silas. He goes from guarding them to showing them hospitality. But the other image is this image of him cleaning their wounds. He takes cloth, he takes warm water, and he starts wiping away the blood and taking away the dirt, bandaging them, and the guard becomes the servant. The sword is replaced by a basin and a towel. And just illustrates the power of God's grace that has been at work in his life and in his mind already. It's a transformational change. And did you hear how verse 34 ends? If you've got it there, if you've got your Bibles out, and I know this might be awkward in the room that you're in, I want you to read this out loud with me. Would you please humor me? Verse 34, chapter 16. Let's read it together. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Filled with joy. God wants us to be filled with joy. And it comes from believing in him and allowing his grace to be at work in our life. And when God's grace is at work in our life, we can experience joy, no matter the circumstances, no matter the difficulties that we face. We're looking forward to moving through this series in the book of Philippians. We're going to start reading this week. We'll put the reading schedule online and would invite you to join with us. Just before the shifts lead us in our closing song, allow me just to close us in prayer. God, today, we thank you that it's your heart's desire for us that we would be filled with your joy, a joy that comes from knowing that you are living in us, that your presence is always with us, that because of your Holy Spirit, we have access to your grace at every moment. And Lord, as we live in these difficult times and uncertain days, may it be our experience that your joy bubbles up to the surface of our lives, no matter where we are. And we will give you praise and thanks for it. In Christ's name, amen.